Welcome to our Blue Notes podcast channel. Join us as we chat with experts, analysts and commentators from the Asian region about business, culture and economics. We hope you enjoy the discussions. You can join the conversation by commenting on our website or on SoundCloud. In this podcast, ANZ's Head of Strategy and Business Optimization, Felicia Truen, catches up with venture capitalist Brad Feld. Feld has had considerable success investing in technology brands like Fitbit and Zinger. Truen and Feld discuss startups, failure, and what's next for wearables. Welcome to Adelaide. Thank you. And is this your first trip to Australia? Uh, I've been here once before, but it was a long time ago, 15 years ago. Oh, okay. First to Adelaide or to Australia? To Australia in general. And I was uh, uh, one city a day. So this is the first time I've had any sense of Adelaide. You have to come back again and do the proper kind of six-week tour without getting food poisoning. I think think a month of just hanging out here will will be fun. I see that in my future. On the beach, in the vineyards, something like that. So um, fantastic to listen to you speak this morning. It's really, really interesting. Um, We've been doing a bit of reading or stalking of you and reading all of your blog and everything, which has been... I'm easy to stalk because I just yeah, kind of put it all out there, right? Are. So it's not... Like... Even colonoscopies. Who yes. knew? Who... So I was very impressed by that. <laughs> I have I have photographs if you'd like to see. <laughs> I did. And the Windows 7 commentary on it when you're trying to work yeah. out which version or XP. That That's was right. <laughs> confidence building. Um, anyway, so one of the things I did read about was a number of businesses that you started. Mm. And I think you started your first business when you were back at school, yep. so quite a long time ago, um, and you talk about your first successful business was actually your third successful business. And I think some of the, the rhetoric that I've been reading when I've been reading a lot of what you talk about, and when, when I heard you even speak this morning when you talked about moving to Boulder and you thought, oh, it'll, if it doesn't work out, we'll move somewhere else, is you seem to have a real tolerance, I guess, for what other people would perceive as failure. So. Do you think that, is that something ingrained in you, in all entrepreneurs, or what is your attitude towards failure? Yeah, I think it's an incredibly important characteristic uh, for, uh, for humans. Mm. Um, I do think it's ingrained deeply in me. I think it's something that um, many people really, really struggle with. Uh, I think for entrepreneurs, it's important to get through that struggle. Um, and in some ways, it's redefine what failure actually means. So uh, it's, it's one thing to talk about the financial failure of a business, um, but you can have a business that is not financially successful, but still has characteristics that are successful. Um, you can employ a bunch of people, you can learn a bunch, you can do good things for customers. And so the absolute success failure characteristic, which is, you know, as humans, is a big part of our measurement of, of, our, of our self-worth and how other people evaluate us, I think if you're going to be a great entrepreneur, you have to transcend that pretty early on. And do you think that that's something people are born with, or it's something can, can le- people I think learn? You it? can learn it. I think um, uh, it, it, I have an interesting conversation periodically with someone who says, "Ah, oh, you know, the last six things I've done haven't worked," and you know, it's like, well, keep keep at it, right? Versus the uh, the problem that I think so many people have, which is they're afraid to try because they're afraid that if they try and it doesn't work, how they're going to be judged and how that's going to turn out. And so coming to Australia, a lot of those sort of attitudes towards failure and trying and having a go, 
Do you think there are similarities or differences in the startup community in Australia versus the US with attitudes towards entrepreneurialism? Yeah, I mean, of the, of the entrepreneurs that I've spent time with, I think the characteristics are, are similar. And I think that's one of the things that's so powerful. You know, there was a, a transition about 20 years ago where information uh, about starting companies, about entrepreneurship, um, about, you know, not just the, f the functional activity, but the emotional activity um, started to be able to be uh, globalized and talked about continuously because of the internet and the World Wide Web. So the communication characteristics of what you were hearing about, seeing about, uh, changed very, very dramatically. And I think certainly in the last um, uh, five or six years, people like Jerry Colonna, who runs a firm called Reboot.io, um, have focused on this notion of radical self-inquiry. You know, yeah. the, the idea that as a founder, you're on a journey, and that journey by definition is going to have lots of things that work and lots of things that don't work, but it's a journey. And if you try to have it a journey that's a straight line from point A to point B, you will be fundamentally unsatisfied. And instead, if you approach it with this notion of radical self-inquiry, how can I learn more about myself as I'm on this journey as an entrepreneur? It becomes very powerful. That's a, an interesting mindset that I'm curious to know how you apply that if you're an entrepreneur, particularly in a big corporate environment. I loved this morning when you were talking about the need to not look at um, success in three-year terms, but in 10, 20-year terms, but also not through that financial success lens, but that is traditionally the way that big corporates think. So is there a way within those sort of organizations to act more entrepreneurially? Well, sure. You know, uh, in a large company and even in a small company, you have social norms and what you know, those social norms of the organization define, you know, if you f adhere to the social norms of the organization, you are making progress, right? And as companies get bigger, those social norms become more routinized. Um, the challenge for very large organizations often is that the social norms are set up in such a way to control all the activity, right? And we were talking about that earlier. It's, you know, the, the people whose job it is to say no to everything and you have to figure out how to overcome those people all the time by doing their, you know, the work that allows them to then say yes, even though there's no value in the, you know, months worth of work you're going to have to do to get one of them to say yes. I, my approach, and this is what I think a lot of entrepreneurs do, is they put all those people in a room and let them talk to each other, right? So you, you, you sort of, if you think fundamentally about it, most founders of companies ignore that. They, they don't pay any attention to that part of the system. Yeah. And they just say, how do I get... <clears throat> from here to there. So in the context of a large company, you try to minimize the amount of time you spend dealing with that stuff that you know has little to no value. And when you find yourself in an organization where you're fundamentally trapped and you're spending all of your time trying to satisfy that large organization's thirst and hunger for uh, you know, information that may or may not have any impact on or won't have any impact on what you're doing, you know, there's a couple of choices, right? One is to say this organization is not for me anymore. Uh, but another choice is to really be aggressive about trying to change some of those norms uh, and challenge them and knowing that one of the outcomes could be failure. Mm. You know, you fail to change the social norm. What's your worst case? Your worst case is you don't have a job anymore. If having the job is more important than challenging the social norms, you're making a decision that's a conscious decision. Nice way of putting it. Um, we talked about, or you talked about networks and value, and um, I'm thinking about those big organisations still, and you had the, the feeders and the leaders, mm -hmm. which I loved that as a, as a concept. 
we took, you talked about the sort of value across the network. As a feeder that may have those social norms, how do you maximise that value in that, that network if you're sort of dealing within the organisation with these sort of, you're pushing up against this traditional business case, you know, financial reporting type mentality versus trying to partner with these great agile, nimble, leadership focused startups. Is it even possible? It's very, it's very possible, but the trick is that you have to um, become an individual node on the network as a person. So the feeder, the, the organization can't be a node. It has to be uh, the individual person that's somewhere in the hierarchy. Mm. So if, you know, personalize it to you, it's not that you're trying to bring your organization into the network that's the startup community. What you're doing is you're engaging in the startup community. It should be in your self-interest and your organization's self-interest. So you're doing it in such a way that helps your organization, but you have to be the one that engages versus trying to bring the whole organization to it. Now, you also don't, shouldn't be the gatekeeper for that. Many people in your organization could engage with the startup community, right? So once someone's interested in what's going on, rather than sort of fight to say, okay, how can we, within our large organization, be involved in this, you know, this startup community messy network thing, mm -hmm. say, well, uh, some people will say, ah, it's not for me, that's totally cool. Other people will say, I'd love to spend more time there, and you figure out how in the context of whatever your responsibility is in your company to engage with the startup community. So it's that focus on the individual, individual instead of the organization. the organization imposing itself into that's the right. network. Um, Give first, that's such a fantastic concept. Nice. Um, can you talk us through that, sort of what the principle of that is? Because mm -hmm. you're writing a book that's due out next year? Yeah, it'll come out next year. Yeah. So the idea of Give First, which has now become the, the theme of, of Techstars, is uh, a very, very simple one. It's that you're willing to enter into uh, a, a system, you're willing to put energy into a system without defining it transactionally. So I don't need to set up the transactional relationship before I put energy in. It's not altruism. I expect to get something back over some time period, but I don't know from whom or where I'm going to get that back. You think about most business transactions, especially between large organizations, you spend all of this time up front negotiating the terms of what your business transaction is going to be, setting the expectations, signing the contract, figuring out how much it's going to cost or how money is going to move back and forth. In the context, for example, of startup community, or in a lot of cases in the relationship between two organizations, this idea of, of one's willingness to engage without defining that transaction up front is very powerful. Now, if you can get a bunch of people, again, around a startup community engaging by giving first, by putting their energy in without knowing what they're going to get back, the returns are orders of magnitude more than you'd get if you one, you know, systematically continued to set up all of these transactional relationships in advance. And have you always got something back? Across the system, right? If you view the energy that you put in as X and I put X into, you know, a hundred different things and X is not the same for each thing, but let's say it's a hundred X of energy, I get back more than a thousand X back. Mm. That one that I put X into, I might get zero X back. That one that I put X into, I might get zero X back. That one, I might get five X back, right? So, so it's a the, aggregate, the aggregate is the interesting thing, not the individual. And do you track that financially or is it non-financial? No, I, I don't pay any attention to it either way, financially or non-financially, because I think that the measurements don't work very well. 
uh, there's two reasons for that. One is that, again, you don't know what consideration you're going to get things back in. So it's not that you're getting things back in a particular economic form. Um, doesn't mean that you're not going to get back economic value, but you just don't know how it's going to accrue to you. The other problem is that you don't know over what time frame. Mm. So when you start trying to measure things, you know, you measure things over a 12-month period. Well, the, the value might come back to you 10 years later. Well, do you not count that value? Or do you wait the 10 years? Well, if you wait the 10 years, you know, you're still dealing with the same kind of measurement dynamic where it just doesn't really impact you uh, in a specific way. It's much, much better to say, I'm going to behave this way. I'm going to have this as my philosophy. Mm. And I'm going to operate under this philosophy with the idea that this is going to happen. Now, um, I've had people say, okay, well, let me take that to the logical extreme. Brad, you're a venture capitalist. You give me five million bucks for my company. And when I have success, I'll give you back what, uh, what I think you deserve. And, you know, that doesn't work as, a, as an investor. And there are places where uh, you do have to enter into a transactional relationship, and transactional relationships are fine. But around the development of a startup community, around the development of an ecosystem for an organization, this give-first approach is incredibly impactful. And that's one of those key tenets, I guess, for lack of a better word, of when you talk about how you build a startup mm -hmm. community. One of the other ones... I thought that was really interesting was around the sense of inclusion and diversity mm -hmm. and that you talked about obvious but and non-obvious diversity. Can you explain more? Sure. So uh, I have become a believer that diversity on all dimensions, uh, more diversity on all dimensions is valuable and is effectively key. So in the context of startup communities, I talk about this idea of being inclusive of anyone who wants to engage at any level. And as I've understood diversity better, the obvious layers of diversity are things like gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation. Uh, those, are the, those are the obvious ones. And I said obvious, not easy, because mm. they're not necessarily easy, but they're, you can identify them. The, the diversity characteristics that are just as important but not obvious our diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of background, of education. This idea that you're trying to create an, an environment that has complete openness to any frame of reference. And if you, you know, as you spend time with entrepreneurs, you find that the best entrepreneurs are the ones that are always curious, always looking for something new. It doesn't mean that you don't have opinions. It doesn't mean that you don't have a frame of reference. But you allow yourself to be open to that. And especially around the context of a startup community, this idea of diversity is incredibly powerful. I like the idea of diversity of thought. I read your blog post about finding your truth mm -hmm. versus the truth, which is such a fascinating concept, particularly when you look at what's happening politically yep. around the world at the moment, which I know you've had, you've burst your tolerance on no, politics I, on social yeah, media. Yeah. But politics in the United States right now is good theatre, so yeah, you should, if you should enjoy the theatre while it lasts because <laughs> it'll stop. Um, the diversity from a gender point of view, I mean, you, you sit on, you've just joined the board of Path Forward, which yeah, I think really which was a new spinoff of a startup. But Path Forward is an organization aimed at um, people um, who have left the workforce, um, I would say usually to have kids, uh, you know, or deal with an, uh, an aging parent, and have been out of the workforce for a while, 10 years, 15 years, and want to re-enter the workforce. And oftentimes they're very skilled but their skills apply 15 years ago. Mm. 
And so they don't, and the skills are not just technical skills, the skills are organizational skills. If you've been out of the workforce for 15 years and you show back up, you don't know, you know, the tools that you use are different. The idea of a daily stand-up is a completely new concept yeah. for you. Scrums. Scrums, that's yeah. right. Like understanding how to work in a company today versus 15 years ago is challenging and that's the goal of Path Forward. And so, and you also are on the, I think you're chair of the board of the National Center for Women and IT. Yep. Um, that's an area where, I mean, I have a personal interest in after having been actively encouraged not to go into IT in high school, being female, yep. in spite of being hacking and coding as a kid. Are you seeing progress in that area at all? We are seeing a lot of progress. So I joined uh, the board and have been chair of NCWIT for about um, a decade, maybe a little bit over a decade now. And when Lucy Sanders started the organization in 2005, her vision, Lucy had been CTO at Avaya, oh, okay. and she had a team of 600 people working for her, and she had worked her way up to that role from a, a starting point in Bell Labs as a female, a female engineer in the 1970s. And being a female software engineer in the 1970s was probably no cup of tea. And her view when she started the organization, her goal was that by uh, 20 years, uh, from 2005, so 2025, it would be obsolete. Organization could go away. So we started NCWIT with the idea that it was a 20-year organization. And our goal was, uh, ultimate goal was to get more women and girls involved in computer science and IT. The first five years we spent learning. So when I showed up and started to work with Lucy, she said to me a very, very simple thing which captured my attention. She said, this is not about gender parity. There's lots of things focused on gender parity. This is about innovation. If we want to build uh, an innovative computer software and IT industry in the U.S., we want to stay competitive, and whether whatever we do in the U.S. is going to apply globally, we've got to figure out how to get more girls and women involved in computer science because literally there's just not enough. Oh, and by the way, why would you want your products that 50% of the population use be built by men? That's stupid. That was her frame of reference at the beginning. So as we would talk about it, we'd say, you know, we, we don't really know what's going on. There's a whole bunch of anecdotes about why girls and women don't engage in computer science long term or why they drop out at different points in time. And those were literally just anecdotes. Oh, it's nerdy. You sit in front of a computer all day long. Guys are smelly. <laughs> um, you know, girls become social in high school as though boys don't, and so then they lose interest in it. And, and the anecdotes all rang hollow. I mean, you know, you kind of they, they were caricatures, and they didn't really work. So we spent a lot of time in the first five years just doing real research, um, mostly academic research. We have an academic alliance to understand some of the underlying drivers of the phenomena. And for the last five or six years, we've had huge impact um, on, now that we understood things uh, in a substantive way, huge impact on making uh, programmatic change to it. And we are making progress. So we had a board meeting about a year ago where everybody was a little anxious, you know, 10 years in, we got 10 years to go. Yeah. A couple of board members say, eh, maybe we should extend this to 30 years. And uh, both Lucy and I are like, no, <laughs> right? Like, you know, we, we are, making progress and we need to keep the constraint dynamic. And my comment to, to the board at the time was, I feel like we've hit a tipping point. I feel like we've hit a point where it's really accelerating. Um, 
some because of the things that we've learned, but also because of how society has changed in terms of its understanding and relationship to these things. Any sort of key takeaways, key learnings? Well, th there's a long, there's a long list. I'll give, you, I'll give you two very actionable ones. Um, one, as an, an actionable in the context of things that we've really learned. Mm. So we were very curious about uh, a thing that we saw statistically, which is that girls, uh, when they were between the ages of like 13 and 18, tended to disengage with computer science. So you see a lot of girls who were like, you know, 10, 11, 12, interested in computers, and then by 15, totally disengaged. It turns out that, uh, and then, then you see some that have stayed engaged. The ones that, uh, small percentage, the ones that stayed engaged, it turned out there's an incredibly high correlation between those girls when they become women having fathers who are engineers who actively did projects with them. There's no correlation between those girls and their mothers actively being involved with them. Wow. And so you look at that and you say, what's going on there? And one of the things that we learned that's going on there, I, I wasn't a teenage girl, you were a teenage girl. Your job as a teenage girl is to separate from your mother. And so the idea as a teenage girl, when your mother says, hey, look, we should go work on this computer stuff, the last thing in the world you want to do is sit with your mother and work on this computer stuff. Mm. When you're a teenage girl, you're still, you have a different kind of attachment to your father. In many cases, your father is still a heroic figure for you. And when your father says, hey, let's go work on this, if he is an engineer and has that kind of a background, you're now doing something that pleases him. Mm. And he's putting energy into you the same way, you know, if you think about boys playing catch with their dads yeah. or boys playing sports with their dads, super easy to do, right? So that dynamic is one example. Um, you know, we probably have an, on the ncwit.org website, you know, there's, there's probably 50 or 100 kinds of things like this. An another one that I really, that resonates with me is this notion of a male advocate. There are very specific things um, a man can do in the context of an organization to encourage uh, women to engage as peers in the organization around IT and computer science. And there are some very harmful things men can do in the absence of that. And so teaching men how to be male advocates, effective in helping women in their organizations um, grow and succeed and develop without creating a one-up, one-down relationship, without letting gender get in the way of that relationship. Understanding that is very important. That's nice. It's both sides. It doesn't just become about one group's right. sort of pushing their agenda or perceived yep. agenda. I'm going to shift gears because I want to talk about Fitbit because mm -hmm. I think that's fantastic and I'm really curious to know what it was about the wearables market that drew you to it and then I looked at what you were doing with Glowforge and what you see with 3D printing. So I guess it's a twofold question. One is what attracted you to those industries before other people invested in them? And then the selfishly, you know, if people have got money to invest, what do you think's next? <laughs> <laughs> so um, for Fitbit specifically, uh, the word wearables didn't exist when, uh, when we invested in Fitbit. Uh, and I would say we were, uh, we were regularly mocked for investing in a digital pedometer company. Who would ever want one of those? Who would ever use one of those? And what appealed to me about Fitbit is something that appeals to me about many of the companies we invest in, which is that the founders were completely and totally obsessed with the thing that they were working on. And they, J James and Eric, uh, were put on this planet, excuse me, they were put on this planet 
to build Fitbit. Um, my partners and I have a theme we invest in called human-computer interaction, and we're very intrigued with the idea of the way humans and machines more tightly interact with each other over time. Um, I think that if you look at what Fitbit was in 2010 when we invested in it, uh, is a subset of uh, human-computer interaction that we call hu uh, human instrumentation. Mm. And it's kind of version 0.1, right? It's very crude. Uh, what it does relative to where it can go, but that captured us and so the sort of the combination of it fitting within one of our themes and then this just complete obsession of the founders around the product was was key. When I think about, uh, you know, we've had plenty of companies that have that set of characteristics that have been successful and plenty that haven't been. When I think about um, one of the things that's been very powerful about the experience with Fitbit is that um, there was nothing easy about the journey for James and Eric. They did not have an easy time raising money. Um, they had competition that emerged quickly that was well-funded. Um, uh, they just focused on building the absolute best product and absolute best customer experience, and they were unyielding in their goal for that. Uh, I look at a company like Glowforge. We were investors in, in an earlier company uh, in 3D printing called MakerBot. Uh, which was the first desktop 3D printing company. Um, 3D printing's been around for 30-something years. Technology's not new. Um, and, uh, but the, the companies that exist make fifty dollars to $100,000 products. And so the idea that you could put a 3D printer on your desk for $2,000 or $2,500 was, didn't, didn't compute. And when I saw MakerBot, my reaction to it was, this is Hewlett-Packard laser printers all over again. Right, because I remember getting when I was in school in college the very first uh, type of HP printer it was called literally called the HP LaserJet, and I don't know it's three or four thousand dollar printer, and it was big. It was like this, but I had it on my desk and it printed two pages a minute, and you know I think it was 150 by 150 DPI, maybe it was 300 by 300, um, and very little of the software worked very well with it, but now all of a sudden I could print on my printer the same quality that. I'd have to send the output you know, to a building that was a mile away yeah. that printed on this laser printer that took up the entire room. So that, that mental model for me for MakerBot was the same. And that led to Glowforge, which is a totally different type of technology. Instead of being additive technology, which was what MakerBot was built on, it's subtractive technology. It uses lasers to cut material. Mm. But same kind of thing. There's fifty to $100,000 laser cutters the software sucks, they're expensive, they're big. You would never have one in your house, not even in your basement. But you could imagine to have a three or $4,000 Glowforge that allows you now to put any piece of material you want, ranging from you know, cardboard to granite mm. into the thing and use the lasers to carve whatever you want in it. So you know, that, that, that's motivated us to make those investments. Really exciting stuff. So what do you think, what's next when you talk about human-computer interaction? Yeah, so I, I, uh, I get asked this question all the time and my answer generally is I don't care. <laughs> Fair enough. And no, no, the reason I, I say it, I, I'd like to believe it's not a cop-out. I don't actually really know. And I think that part of what uh, my partners and I try to do is have very open minds about what comes our way. Uh, we guide uh, our interests by these themes that we invest in. Um, but we're not predictors. And you know, at the end of every year, I get emails saying, you know, uh, at the end of 2015, all the local newspapers and some national papers email me and say, can you give me your predictions for 2016? 
and it makes me yawn. No, it makes me yawn when I get those questions. Um, and, and I say no. I mean, I literally just respond with no. I don't, I don't make predictions. Um, I think that one of the awesome things that's going on in our society today is that the rate of change uh, of the integration of technology and human beings is happening at a pace that's incomprehensible to us. And so if you, you know, if you were able to time travel 40 years into the future, you would not recognize planet Earth. Mm. And I think we're at a point in time where that's happening. And part of the phenomena that's causing that is the difference in sort of how a line works versus an exponential curve, yeah. right? So I think people, as humans, we're very, very comfortable extrapolating linearly, right? We're here and we're gonna get to here and we're gonna get to here this way. What we're not used to doing is extrapolating geometrically where we go like this. And if your time unit's small enough on a geometric curve, it looks like a line. Mm. So we're always in this mindset of everything is linear. But in fact, much of the innovation curve is geometric. And we're at the, I think we're at the part of the curve not predicting. Um, I guess my, I should say it's my value system is we're at the part of the curve where there's an incredible amount of upward slope. Yeah, nice. I don't think that's a cop out at all. I'm gonna ask you one more question. Sure. And you have to answer this one, right? Okay. <laughs> so if you think about the legacy that you wanna leave, as an individual and everything that you have done, what are the sort of words that you would like people to describe you as? So I don't actually think about uh, the word legacy. Um, Amy and I talk about this a lot. My, wife, my wife's name is Amy. We don't have any children. Um, we've decided uh, to give away all the money that we make before we die. And so we try to actively engage in real time as much as we possibly can with the things that are interesting to us or important to us. And I think that's the essence of answering the question. That's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah, you talk yeah. about Amy a lot, I must say, when you read through, yeah. even today. Well, I found, you know, 25 years later, I'm lucky I found the person that I was meant to be on this planet with. Yeah, it's good. And it shows a real sense of partnership, which seems to be a real essence of you and it both is. your work as well as... It, critically important and very satisfying. And so. I think, you know, if you come back to the question of legacy, the two of us view it as we, we want, if, if you remembered us for something, it was, you know, they, they played uh, all in while they were here. Yeah, that's nice. Um, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for listening to Blue Notes On Air. Blue Notes On Air was produced by the Blue Notes editorial team with music by Kevin McLeod. Blue Notes is a publication of ANZ Banking Group. 